Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Dr. Eli Karam back with you, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. And we're going to talk about today one of the most requested topics, um, and that is mindfulness. Mindfulness has, in the last two decades, not only swept over psychotherapy in general, but also our niche of systemic thinking, couple and family therapy. And no better person to talk about that with us today than Dr. Diane Gayhart. Diane is a jack of all trades. If you've ever gone to an AMFT conference, you've probably seen her uh, present. She's a author of one of the most widely adopted MFT textbooks, and uh, she's just a great instructor um, and an, an innovator in the way we integrate uh, concepts into the field of, of couple and family therapy. But one of those first questions is, well, what does that even mean? Mindfulness. I didn't have a class on that in graduate school. Or if I did, I wasn't really exposed to it. Well, for our purposes today, we'll define mindfulness as a meditation technique that's used to treat a number of mental health and physical conditions. And when practiced regularly, and Diane will talk about what that means, regular practice, It's a simple technique that can effectively reduce stress, depression, anxiety, and even chronic pain. It is something the the more mature into my profession I get that the idea to be able to focus, to let all that negative stuff from one session kind of clear my head before I start the next session. Um, That's professionally, but in personally, uh, personally, in order to be present and. Uh, aware and not distracted around the people I love the most. I mean, these mindful skills, we use them in work and out of work. So I think it's something that as you grow as a therapist, you can always improve on. And I'm very excited for Diane to talk about that today on the podcast. Um, Diane is Diane Gehart is a professor of marriage and family therapy at Cal State University Northridge. She carefully tracks emerging research in our field and studied a wide range of therapeutic approaches, including mindfulness. As I said before, she's authored many influential texts, including Mastering Competencies in Family Therapy, and a book we'll reference today, Mindfulness and Acceptance in Couple and Family Therapy. Addition has been featured in newspapers, radio, TV, and is really an active leader in AMFT. Um, you can see her often presenting at conferences, and she's really taken the lead on the new simulation project within AMFT that you've heard us reference on the podcast and, and that she'll come back to speak on later um, in more depth. She's an approved supervisor and a clinical fellow of AMFT. 
So we will be back and share some user-friendly resources after we talk to Diane. Today we're all here to talk about mindfulness and mindfulness in systemic therapies. But before we get there, I always like to ask our guests and experts how they got interested in the field of MFT to start with. So kind of tell me your origin story, if you will. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a little lengthy, but it, it is fun. And it, it's a good marketing tool, really, for career counseling. Um, so how I ended up um, in MFT, and I'm going to, it's actually intertwined with the whole topic of mindfulness. Um, so I will start with, I grew up in Southern California, and I visited the East Coast, and I ended up at William and Mary, uh, College of William and Mary in Virginia. And I, I knew I wanted to do psychology from the, you know, quote-unquote psychology from the day I, uh, from high school, because I had been a peer counselor back then. So I was sitting in this office with a very, one of those real intimidating psych professors who, you know, behave, pure behavioralists, you know, I call it rat science. They did, we actually did science with rats there. And um, he's like, so Diane, choose an elective. And I'm like, I'm like, I haven't looked at the catalog. He'd given me all the courses I need to be a psych major. You get one elective, pick it. I'm like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? And I was panicked because he was not very warm or friendly. So I'm flipping through the catalog and I'm like, wow, they have a department of religion at a state school? That's amazing. I didn't know that was legal. And then I'm like, wow, they have a course in Buddhism. And so um, I ended up signing. He's like, well, that sounds fine. Sign up for Buddhism. There's space in that class. So I signed up for Buddhism. I ended up in this course and it's an upper division course where everyone's already studied Japanese and Chinese. I'm the only one who doesn't know an Asian language in the course. I do get a B in Buddhism, and that's part of my, um, just kind of my fair warning when I get into the mindfulness, but I fell in love with Buddhism. So I ended up actually being a psychology and East Asian studies major. Grad, yeah, both of those were majors, and I, I did eventually learn Chinese. And I ended up selecting my first doctoral program that I started but did not finish was um, uh, in Asian studies, and I was planning to be a Tibetan Buddhist scholar. And so that was my first. And then I, when I got there and I was studying Tibetan, I realized that like the TAs had PhD after their name. I'm like, that's weird. I thought you get to be the professor when you have PhD. So I started talking to people. I'm like, yeah, most of the people end up being working for the CIA. And I'm like, wow, I am so not CIA material. I mean, Indiana Jones was big. I'm like, I would be dead in the first 24 hours. So I'm like, let me go back to psychology. So, and, and, and as it happens in life, I was dating, I did that at the University of Washington. I was dating someone from Texas. So I ended up going back to Texas and applying to schools there. And I applied to a program and there were two boxes. Do you want to specialize in community mental health or MFT? And it was actually a counseling program. I had no idea I wasn't signing up to be a, a, in a psych program. I'm like, wow, you know, that family I moved 3,000 miles away from when I was, you know, going to undergraduate, I, I think family therapy would be really interesting. So I signed up for it. I have no idea actually what I'm signing up for. But I sit in my first systemic theories course. And as they're describing these theories, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is, Taoism and Buddhism put to practical use. It's like you putting know, a language to a way you've al al always thought but didn't have uh, the systemic language to go with. Exactly. And so the holistic thinking is very much part of the Taoism that I've been studying. And 
the deconstructionist philosophies of social constructionism, and I'll be honest, this is uh, <laughs> this was 1992 and three when postmodernism wasn't was barely in a textbook. Um, but I'm like, this is it. This is I am going to be my Tibetan Buddhist scholar, but I'm going to do it in a practical way and study these ideas. And I just fe I fell in love. I'm still in love. I love these ideas. Um, they excite me and. Um, so that's how I ended up being an MFT. It was, you know, it's a good advertisement for career counseling. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but once I realized what it was, um, I have just loved it. If if our listeners don't know what mindfulness is, they've heard it, but as you said, it's not in traditional MFT text, or at least many of the text. Um, how would you define that for the, the layman, if you will, define mindfulness? So, um, and there are a lot of misconceptions about mindfulness. So mindfulness is a very specific form of practice. It often takes the form of a meditation, but it's when you consciously choose, and that's very important, um, you consciously choose to focus on something in the present moment. It can be your breath. If you're doing body meditation, uh, body scan, it's, you know, experiencing what your body feels like, you can do an eating meditation. So some kind of, something in the present moment um, and trying to quiet the inner chatter in your mind. It never totally goes away. Um, but you try to quiet your mind and just experience what's going on without using language to describe it. And, and to, what happens is though, that doesn't last for more than a few seconds. And so you must constantly refocus. And when you refocus, you do it with compassion and non-judgment. So those are the critical elements. And, you know, I think it's important to distinguish it from like flow because flow is a very similar, I, my students will say, well, when I'm running, I'm meditating. I'm like, no, when you're running, you experience flow, which is a natural byproduct of an activity that takes effort. But it, um, so, you, so you put effort into running, but the flow mental state, the state of flow, is not anything you control and doesn't require like discipline on your part. Where mindfulness requires discipline. You are consciously refocusing your mind and trying to quiet that inner the inner chatter that's that's always there. So flow flow comes when you're engaged in something else where mindfulness is a purposeful directed exactly. activity all of it of itself. Yes, exactly. And flow is always joyful. Mindfulness is not. <laughs> and, and flow is important too. We should all, you know, engage in activities regularly that, you know, give us that natural byproduct. But mindfulness really is a different uh, practice and it does take effort. Um, and it's, you know, you don't always have that joyfulness that is associated with flow. Okay, so when you got into the field, again, while you told your origin story, and it's a beautiful fit for what you were interested in, but when you entered, nobody was integrating this into psychotherapy, much less systemic psychotherapy, what we know as a couple and family therapy. So talk about how you took your interest and then started to integrate it into the training of MFTs. You're known as kind of a an innovator in training. And again, this is something that you're passionate about, but it didn't exist uh, when you entered the field. So talk about how you kind of then developed into training other systemic-based therapists. How yeah. And when I first entered the field, I mean, I remember being terrified to mention that meditation, Buddhist psychology, anything like that. Like I literally, especially during my doctoral program, I kept it really quiet. And, um, but I do remember my first breakout was during my doctoral comps in terms of how I 
develop therapeutic relationships. But sometime, at some point, um, as in, is a, I think before I even graduated, I was like, God, what, I gotta I got have professional presentations and publications to be a professor, what should I do? And um, one of the th thoughts, one of the areas where I started working was actually, you know, talking about how Buddhist psychology aligns with, um, or in, can, could inform systemic practice. And so that was, some of my earliest presentations were on this topic. So I was uh, presenting um, up in Canada, actually, on Buddhist psychology and how it could inform uh, family therapy and mental practice, mental health generally. And this was in the early, early 90s. And some someone during the conference came up to me and they're like, have you heard of John Kabat-Zinn? And I'll be honest, I had not. I felt really embarrassed afterwards. Um, but that's when I learned, because I at that point I had used the term Buddhist psychology. I mean, at that point I could do a literature review and there were six articles in the field. It's, there, there was a day where you could do exhaustive literature reviews. And so then I put mindfulness. And then I got like, I don't know, 20 hits, but that's, so early on I learned that mindfulness is really how these ideas were being introduced to the field, and John Kovac's Zen work really separated out any religious um, aspects from the actual practice of mindfulness. So, so that is, and then once the mindfulness, and I, I realize this is how this is going to be introduced to the field of mental health. Thank a lot of our listeners, they're intrigued by this, but they want a, you're such a good storyteller. They want a, uh, an idea of what this would look like. So if I'm someone, it's much like um, we like to think, if, if, if you don't understand the concept and how it works for you, it's very hard to teach clients, an individual, much less a couple or a family, how to do this. So how do you start introducing this to students and training them to be mindful themselves before they can teach this to their clients. Exactly, yeah, and that is a very important point because the general recommendation is six to 12 months of personal practice on the part of the clinician before you try to introduce this to clients. And I started, uh, I worked with my colleague Eric McCullum who had done a lot of research um, in multi-couple groups related to domestic violence with Sandra Stiff. Um, but I randomly bumped into him at a solution-focused conference, and at the time, he was like, I, I was presenting on, on mindfulness and Buddhism. He was sitting in the audience, and he, at the end, he stayed there, and he was like, so, I, I have some interest in this, too. So the two of us started working together, and we actually presented at the conferences for over a decade on mindfulness um, together, and we decided that it would be really good for our students to learn how to to practice mindfulness to help them manage their anxiety, to work on their therapeutic presence in the room. And so he and I worked together, I think we started in 2004. Uh, we both got permission from our, you know, deans and chairs to integrate mindfulness into our fieldwork curricula. And so the basic requirement we decided that was realistic was having our students practice five minutes a day, five days a week just because the discipline required is quite significant. And uh, doing five minutes of mindfulness a day, five days a week, is a lifestyle change. It, it radically changes um, your every aspect. And it's, it's because it takes so much work to slow down from most of our hectic paces of life to do that five minutes. And I have a, there's a wonderful video if, um, uh, that's associated um, 
with my book, uh, Mastering Competencies in Family Therapy. And it's available if you get the MindTap online edition. And I just love this video because I have a teenager who's got, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, wants to learn mindfulness. And I, I work with him. It's demonstrating cognitive behavioral family therapy because mindfulness is associated with the behavioral approaches. And we, we, we sit there for like 20, 30 minutes figuring out how he's going to do five minutes of mindfulness before school. And it really does require him to go to bed half an hour early. And it's just a beautiful illustration. Like that's the reality. So we knew we were asking our students to do a lot. We allowed, um, we also introduced, there are Christian forms of mindfulness called contemplative prayer. There are Jewish based um, versions of mindfulness. So we also allowed people to kind of integrate this with their own personal existing spiritual practices. But we had our, had our students do that. And we really, I think both of us were blown away by- you know, What was the uh, buy-in like, or did you get any resistance from uh, certain students, students, even though five minutes, as you said, doesn't seem like that long. It's very purposeful, and it is, it's a, it's a systemic lifestyle change when you start doing that. What was the resistance, if any, that you got from students? He really, and so this is 2004, and Eric is at Virginia Tech um, outside, you know, the D.C. area, one of the satellite campuses for Virginia Tech, and I'm in California and Los Angeles area. So my students were all they were cool with it, you know, it's California, meditation is just part of the culture, and so my students actually begged me to require it the second semester of field work because they wouldn't do it unless they had to, but they knew it was good for them. So in LA, I had very little resistance. In, in Virginia, Eric had to work a bit harder. There were some students who were uncomfortable with it because it was an Eastern spiritual, you know, I mean, we use the term mindfulness, you know, it does refer to an Eastern religious practice, but there are definitely, you know, Judeo-Christian versions of this as well, but he certainly struggled more with the resistance than I did. But I think we, we did some re qualitative research, a little bit of quantitative kind of outcome stuff, and it was stunning. And, and just as a, as a professor, I mean, as a supervisor, I can say, that mindfulness was only second to live supervision in helping students in their first year become clinicians. Because if they, if you can manage your stress response, um, as a new clinician, you have access to everything you've learned in the first year or so of the program. I mean, to me, that's the buy-in right there is even if you are a student uh, who is skeptical, if, if the buy-in is this will help me be a better therapist, this will help me clear my head, limit my anxieties, be able to be fully present and focus on my clinical development and my work with clients. To me, that is, that is the buy-in. Absolutely. And you know, uh, one of the things, I use a lot of Dan Siegel, um, who, de who just describes some of the neurobiology of, of mindfulness. And I'm going to see if we can do this in a podcast, but if you, if everyone who's listening, unless your hand is on the steering wheel, um, I recommend if you pick up your hand and fold your thumb down and then put your, your knuckles over your thumb, what you have is what Dan Siegel calls a handy model of the brain with your brainstem oh, represented by your wrist. So that's what keeps your heart beating and your lungs um, going without you consciously saying heartbeat, you know, time to breathe lungs. That's totally, so we have no conscious control over this part of the brain. The thumb represents your limbic system, which is where the stress response, the fight, flight, or freeze response is. And then your uh, prefrontal cortex is represented by your knuckles in the very front, which is where good decision-making, executive functioning, 
And all that good stuff you learned in grad school is located in that prefrontal cortex. And what happens is if um, when you become stressed, and this is very, I mean, supervisors who do live supervision, we just watch this happen. As you become stressed, you're, you quote unquote flip your lid. So that would mean lifting your, your uh, fingers off that thumb and you flip your lid, which means, and your prefrontal cortex goes offline under stress. And the reason for this is, is biological because if a bear is about to eat you and you've got to either run, fight, or freeze, praying that the bear doesn't see you, um, your prefrontal cortex just takes, it's too slow. It, it's not gonna, you're not gonna save your life. So that's how our brains are just wired. Unfortunately, our brains are not wired to be nervous as a first year MFT student. So what happens is all that, all the academic knowledge they have, they, you don't have access to it. And so that is why if you can keep your, your lid on, so to speak, in your first year of therapy, that changes the game. Because I remember as a new supervisor, I'd watch some of my best students go into session. We'd, they'd come out, they'd have mid-session break, and I'd be like, go in and ask, you know, a scaling question. I'd give them the words, right? They'd go back into the room, and they wouldn't do it. And I'm like, what's going on here, folks? And what it was is that they were so stressed, their lid was so flipped, they didn't have access. They couldn't. They literally could not remember what I had just told them. And that's what. That's why stress, the stress response, when it's totally normal and natural to be stressed out. If if you're not stressed as a first year MFT, I would be concerned. But if you can keep your lid on, even you know, improve that fifty percent, you, your first year is going to go so much more smoother, and you'll be a much better therapist in that first year. Formats. If folks uh, will have students, will have educators really anyone interested in systemic-based relational therapies listening to this podcast. If I'm an educator, where does this fit in a MFT curriculum? Do you do it in supervision? Should it be in a pre-practicum or skills course? Where, where, where should it fit both uh, course-wise and in the two- to three-year training sequence of most of our MFT students? Well, you know, ideally... Um, the ideal place for it would be in the pre-practicum as a, because it, you know, you do rewire your brain. If you practice five minutes a day, five days a week, every time you refocus during the mindfulness meditation, the basic, what we have most people do is try to focus on your breath, quiet the inner chatter. When your mind wanders, return it with, without being judgmental or compassionate or telling yourself that, you know, oh my God, I'm a horrible meditator, you know, and beat yourself up, which is what most, most of us do. So if you do that, every time you refocus, you, you have a new type of uh, neural firing between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. And so you literally thicken the connection and, and increase your ability to shut down that stress response consciously. And so if you can do that in the first year, then by the time they're in field work, they, the students will neurologically, their brains will have an increased capacity to focus and calm their limbic system under stress. So the earlier the better. Um, but again, field work is nice because there's more motivation. <laughs> the motivation is higher to practice in field work because they, um, they're experiencing their stress. It is overwhelming and anything to shut that down. So I, you know, feel, you know, theoretically that first semester would be the best, but it's certainly the motivation is higher in that once they start seeing clients. And what I love about this, I, I, I love anything that will make me a better therapist. And even two decades into practicing and being an educator, uh, this skill is something 
it, it, as long as you keep practicing, you could always get better at it. it. You don't peak. You can always be more mindful. Uh, so I love anything, as I said, that will make me a better therapist. So if I'm listening to this and I wasn't lucky enough to have Diane or Eric in, in graduate school and I'm out there practicing, um, this framework fits with any preferred orientation, any of your preferred model or theory. It's one of those things that enhances uh, your therapist factors, so to speak. So if I'm out in the field, out of graduate student, already practicing, how can I improve my mindfulness? Where can I get trained in this, Diane? So I do recommend that you find an eight-week mindfulness-based group that's affiliated, especially since you're, you know, we're professionals. Uh, I, on the East Coast, you're going to find out a lot of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and you can Google mindfulness. Uh, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts and uh, find a list of all of their approved teachers. They do have a very rigorous training program and getting into one of those eight-week MBSR courses. Another set of courses to look at is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is based on the mindfulness-based stress reduction but has a specific emphasis on depression and anxiety. It is the gold standard gold standard for depression relapse. And so that's a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to find, you know, someone who's trained in that. And then on the West Coast, UCLA is kind of our headquarters where it's the mindfulness awareness program at UCLA. And let's see, I think that's Mark. It's under the, that one I have memorized because I live in LA. It's uh, M-A-R-C dot UCLA dot E-D-U, but it's the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA, which also has, similar to these other programs, uh, in a, it, th these eight-week standardized programs where they're very rigorous training for the instructors who do a good job. Because the, And that what happens in those eight-week courses um, is that you get inter integrated into the practice and all of its subtleties. And, and being in a group, I have had students, there's an online version I know of the UCLA program, and my students have said that the face-to-face, the -face, you really do get more out of it. But being, I mean, just knowing that there's a group of 10 to 30 other people going home, sitting in an empty room by themselves, doing this totally boring practice by themselves helps motivate you. And then coming back and talking about the experience, because what you're really doing is you're observing the mind in action. And I think this is so important for anyone who works in the mental health field to, to observe what the mind actually is like, because it's, it, it's humbling. Uh, it, it is humbling and it should be humbling, but understanding that ha helps you develop a lot more compassion and just understanding of the subtle subtleties of how the mind works. But that, you know, having those conversations, there's nothing that replaces that having those conversations and dialogues that happen in those eight week mindfulness classes so that you really, and to understand how to deal with, you know, oh, I don't have time to practice mindfulness. And, you know, what happens if I sit down for five, ten minutes and I can't focus the entire time my mind is wandering? How do you deal with that? Or how do you deal with all, you know, um, all the different struggles? And there are a lot of struggles that come up in, uh, in this practice. And so those groups are very helpful. And that allows you, especially because you're not going to experience all the forms of resistance and struggle that a human can have. And if you're going to go and teach this to other people, sitting in a group of 10 to 30 other people, listening to all the different ways that people can struggle this will allow you to actually help 
clients. No, oh, I um, love it because we're, we're relation-based people anyway. So the experiential component, not only processing with other people that are learning it for the first time, but even if you don't have a block, there's a good chance when you're teaching this to clients, they will. So hearing other people's experience or what blocks them from getting to this more mindful state uh, is something that will help you when you're delivering it and teaching it to your clients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, here's one I think of a lot. So this, this seems like something that is inherently, uh, I mean, it's hard to put an argument against it, why you wouldn't want to be more mindful and train it. But when we try to make it systemic, what does this look like? I think everybody can kind of visualize what it would look like in individual therapy. What does this look like when you're working with multiple people in the room? Uh, maybe you have a good example of teaching mindfulness as, as it pertains to couple dynamics or family dynamics, maybe uh, two parents and a out-of-control teenager or what have you. How, how does it work systemically? Well, it actually works best, um, better systemically than with individuals. I can tell you that because I've been doing this for a long time. So the best way to learn the practice of mindfulness is in an eight-week standardized group. The second best way is in couple or family therapy. The, the hardest way to do it is individual therapy because there's just we we don't have a, so, a social discourse that puts a lot of value on sitting around doing nothing in a room by yourself like and so it's the first thing everyone cuts off their to-do list unless there is social pressure which is why i think the social setting makes a big difference and in terms of working with couples and families um the place that i have and um had the most success is really working with families where a child has been diagnosed with adhd because mindfulness is one of only two evidence-based approaches um, that have the potential to actually correct um, some of the underlying you know, neurobiology of ADHD. And that's that, if you think about it, mindfulness is pro practicing focus, okay? So, you know, however you use your brain, right? The neurons that fire together, wire together. So as you practice focusing, using mindfulness, you do, you know, do subtly shift the structures of the brain to increase the capacity of the prefrontal cortex to shut off the limbic system. The ADHD is basically, there's, you know, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully online. That's why we give people stimulants to wake it up. And so, but mindfulness actually increases the capacity of a person to focus. So, and many parents, you know, and quite frankly, the key to mindfulness practice being regular is motivation. It, it really is, not how to do it, but how do you motivate yourself or your clients to do it? That's the struggle. Um, and so with families who have kids diagnosed with ADHD, because there is, you know, a sufficient amount of evidence that's quite motivating, you know, these, you know, pretty intense medications, um, that is the motivation that, that I've been the most successful with families with kids or adults diagnosed with ADHD to get off those meds. So, Basically, the idea and you know, the basic idea is is to find a time where the family can work, you know, sit down and, and practice the mindfulness and find a way for that to work. And with, when you're working with couples, the issue that typically comes up is always one person is going to be more motivated than the other, you know. And you just need to make sure that it's not such a high conflict couple where this becomes another thing they argue about, another, you know, more evidence that so-and-so is, you know, not doing his or her part or is lazy or whatever. So with couples, you just have to, you know, I think they need to be out of the high conflict stage um, 
for this to work with them, you just navigate. And even with the kids, you know, I don't want the parents, you know, you got a kid diagnosed with ADHD, right? So the parents are probably nagging that kid a lot. So I really work on having the kid, I put, you know, if they have a digital device, I have them put reminders on their phone to have the kid ask the parent to sit down and do mindfulness rather than it having something else the parent nags the child about. Obviously, you know, age plays into this, but with, once the kids are, you know, nine, 10, I, I try to get them to be the one nagging the parent <laughs> to do mindfulness. Those are great examples. I, I use one with couples, you know, many couples therapists teach couples how to take time out and what you should do and what you should not do during a time out. I think, uh, uh, teaching mindfulness and um, a partner that can go and practice the fo- focus and clear their head as many couples want to come back and restart that dialogue before they're completely calmed right. down or reset so practicing the mindful techniques really helps um, shorten that refractory period um, so you can restart a conversation in a productive way but you're right it's hard to imagine teaching someone to do that in in the midst of a high conflict um, you mentioned, you know, two great ways, an experiential group. Um, you talk about this kind of online delivery. Uh, you're very humble, but talk about your book. One of the best things, as I said, about people that have read your text, and I'm talking specifically about your mindfulness book, is that you you do have, you know, very clear examples, much like you gave us the example of the fist to represent the brain, just very good examples of what this would look like. If uh, somebody picks up your book, what will they find in there, Diane? Oh, my book, Mindfulness and Acceptance in Couple and Family Therapy? Yes. So this is a book that um, I wrote to kind of put all these ideas uh, together. And I, I do actually, because part of how I got into this whole you know, uh, profession was looking at the Buddhist psychology and comparing it to systemic and postmodern ideas. So I have a lot of fun doing that. And then I really think of it as there are two different ways to work with mindfulness and the related concept of acceptance, um, which is when if you think of the mindfulness practice, when you refocus, the idea is to not judge what yourself or your thought that you just had and to do so with compassion. And so that's the acceptance piece. So, um, so one part I talk about how to teach couples and families kind of like we've been discussing here, how to actually meditate, like do mindfulness meditation at home. And I should add to that, there are a lot of fabulous apps with um, out there like Insight Timer that come with lots of free guided meditations as well as the dong, the you know, a bell that you can program any way you want to micromanage that bell. And there's also um, Headspace is the one that many of my especially adolescents when I have them do this, really like Headspace, it does it step by step. But the other half of the book talks about not how to get people to meditate, because I, you know, there's so many, meditation is a major lifestyle change. Actually getting someone to practice five minutes a day is, that is a huge, huge thing to ask. And that's why I think it's so important that people have a six to 12 month practice beforehand and you realize the enormity of that request. And you can see people who have not been well-trained, they're like, oh yeah, I've practiced 20 minutes a day. And they get this, you know, their client who has anxiety. And I'm like, you almost need to not have a job to like do 20 minutes a day, or at least no kids, no major, you know, no major outside commitments and a, you know, a job that's only 40 hours a week. So, so that's one piece. But the other half of the book, and I think actually the majority of the book really looks at how do you use these concepts to inform whatever approach to therapy and counseling that you might be using. And I think 
One of the things, one of the concepts in terms of acceptance of Buddhist psychology that really shifted how I work, which I describe in this book, is this concept of equanimity is really the goal. And if you think of certain approaches where it's like, if you think of solution focus comes to mind where you come in, the client gets to state what their goal is and yep, you know, I'm going to work with you to achieve that. And there isn't uh, a lot of space in some of these approaches to really reflect on, is that a realistic goal? Is that a, is that a goal that, um, is that the best way to conceptualize our goal? And the concept of equanimity is that our goal is not to get happy or have conflict, you know, free relationships or to have just ongoing perfect happiness and every time we're not happy, that's a problem. The goal is to develop what the Buddhists call a sense of equanimity, which is to move with the ups and downs of life gracefully. And that really shifted how I see my work. My work is to really, and you can maybe call it resilience, it relates to a lot of the resilience work. My, my, my goal is to help whoever comes to me not only work through whatever problem they're currently working on, but to help them to realize that you know life has its ups, it has its downs, and how do you move through that gracefully? And so that is one of the real gifts, I, I think, of the Buddhist psychology to mental health because if we almost subtly promise um, our clients, it's not a direct, you know, money back guarantee, but there's this implication in the field of mental health that if you're unhappy or experiencing problems, something must be wrong. And, and that is a very dangerous concept because I don't know anyone who is able to go through this life and not have challenges. And, and so this is where I think Buddhism, the Buddhist psychology really challenges us. And I, I think it's something we need, a challenge we need to take seriously and that we can do our work much better in terms of helping our clients learn, you know, before they're done with us, how to, to develop more equanimity. I mean, you've been interested in this for a long time now and have, have again, pioneered the integrating of this into couple and family therapy practice and training where are we headed, let's say, in the next decade? Where would you like mindfulness to be um, as far as integrating into our field, looking into the future? I definitely think it should be an important part of our clinical training. It's, and it doesn't you know, have to be mindfulness, but I think understanding the stress response, how it affects um, any of us in the field, and, and, and how that relates to the trauma and trauma response, I, I think is really important. Um, and so, but I, I think increasing the capacity of therapists to um, manage their stress response is essential. And I should also manage, I, mean, I should also mention that this really, mindfulness very, uh, is very important uh, in working with traumatized clients, which is, I don't, the majority, definitely the majority of, of anyone who comes into our room has a history of some kind of trauma. And one of the things they have found is that trauma neurologically is your brain is in an, is not, cannot, is not in an integrated neural state. And often depending on the severity of the trauma, it can't get back into that. And mindfulness is a, I mean, physiologically helps people get into that integrated neural states. And clients with significant trauma histories what they're finding is that what actually happens is the therapist has to be, has to be in an integrated neural state to really work through tra trauma with clients. Because what happens is, because brain waves actually kind of link up 
and they get into, um, they, they, they kind of fall in sync. And this is a, a, what's called, a, what Dan Siegel calls attunement. They get into a relational attunement. And you know how you feel felt by either a, your partner or your friends or a good therapist? You feel connected? They can measure that now with the brain. And But therapists need to get into that neural state and allowing their clients and get into attunement with their clients. The clients actually borrow the therapist's integrated neural co coherent brain state to put all the pieces of the trauma together to um, in order to resolve the trauma because in some ways Give, gives new meaning to the term kind of internalizing your therapist if you're the client literally being in sync with them intuit them yes yeah and neurologically you can define you know effective I mean the resolution of trauma is all those scattered memories that happen when your hippocampus goes offline, it's like the video recorder of your mind goes offline during the trauma because you're so overwhelmed. Um, those, you know, sights, sounds, memories, um, those are all scattered throughout your brain. And so the, you know, resolution of trauma is putting it all into a coherent narrative, which didn't happen um, because the brain was focused on survival. And you put it into this coherent narrative, and that's why the flashbacks and the nightmares, you know, and, and the hypervigilance ends. So, but you need, a therapist has to be in an integrated neural state. I don't think trauma treatment will ever be online. That one, that one we get to keep doing face to face. Um, so I think this is essential for therapists to really understand the mind. And so in terms of the future, I, I think really working with our students in some way, doesn't have to be sitting down, watching yourself breathe quietly, but to find um, ways for therapists to be able to ensure that they're in an integrated neural state. And that was really a new concept for me that my, the neural state of my brain impacts the quality of what I do in the room. And that's a, a new level of responsibility in some ways. It's like I always find, at least, even if I'm running late, I take 60 seconds to get myself into you know uh, a good neural state when I do therapy so that I can be present my clients can feel felt and the work's going to just be more effective oh, I'm glad you brought that up too because that's what I do too kind of my ritual if I have a 50 minute hour I have 10 minutes to write a note go to the bathroom return a call and I save a minute or two um, through this advanced practice to clear the mind no matter how difficult the last session was and to, to focus on the session to come. So it really becomes a practical skill for the therapist. You're, you're so authentic and such a good storyteller. We'll end with one question. Talk about how, because you've been practicing this for a long time, and I think some people are like, well, you know, I can never get to that level. I can never do it. Uh, the way Diane does it. Talk about how your own practice has made you. We've talked about how it makes you a better therapist. Talk about how it makes you a better spouse, a better mother, uh, a better friend. Uh, give a, a personal story, uh, really, how your practice of this directed mindfulness has made you a better person. I say that I literally have on my to-do list every day is an automatic reminder to do mindfulness because, and I, you know, I try to do it you do it the same time every day? Uh, I try to do it after I get dressed, yes, in the morning. Before I walk downstairs to get in the car and drive to work. Um, uh, that's Yeah, I try to do it the same time every day. I'm, I'm worse at doing it at night because sometimes I'm, like, too tired. And so I put – and I, I want that, you know, kind of focus at the beginning of the day. So I'm a morning meditator. But if I forget when I get to work, like because I was rushed, you know, um, there's a, you know, my computer just whacks me in the face and says, did you, you know, do your meditation? I get these little reminders. So I, it's not like I do this and I, I say, I put it in the category of flossing. It's like, 
Because, you know, if you sit there and wait for the mood to strike you, like, oh, it's a spa experience. And, um, you know, I'm just it's a big spiritual moment. It's like, if you wait to get into that mood, you'll never meditate. And so I'm like, you have to do it to take care of your brain. I hate flossing my teeth. I do it every day anyway. And that's really where I put mindfulness. It's like, you've got a brain, you need to maintain it. You're going to meditate even when it's totally inconvenient and you don't feel like doing it. Yeah, because I'm a busy mom. I've got two young kids sort of got three different jobs. So I never, I rarely feel like meditating unless it's vacation, where it like feel, I feel like doing it. Ah, oh, this would just be a beautiful moment. So it is a discipline for me. Um, and I think where I used it uh, most importantly, really, uh, when I was a new mother and my babies would cry as babies do. And there's a, anyone who has kids, maybe they experience this, like there, the stress response that goes off in a sleep deprived mother's brain is really off the charts when your baby starts to cry. It's like, oh my God, no sleep. Oh my God, what's wrong? And my stress response would go off because you're sleep deprived, you're exhausted, you've got this baby. And I remember saying, Diane, you have to pick up that baby in an integrated neural you know, uh, state. So take three deep breaths. The baby can cry for 10 more seconds. And she put your smart part on, which is what I call it when I teach mindfulness to kids, your prefrontal cortex. Get yourself into an integrated neural state because when you pick up that baby and you're calm and you're at peace, the baby's gonna calm down sooner and you'll get back to sleep. So you'll get to go back to bed. <laughs> and that is really, um, and it really was uh, very important. Uh, I, I think in those early years of parenting for me that I remember quite distinctly um, so that was one of the gifts and I cannot, I cannot imagine having a newborn without meditating on a regular basis because that is what got me. Thank through. you so much for sharing both your professional wisdom and that personal story. And, um, it's been great to have you on the podcast. We will have you on later in the year to talk about some other exciting things. Uh, Tracy Todd mentioned in our debut episode, everything you're doing with uh, simulation and MFT training. So that's a whole different uh, line of uh, interest, but will we'll interest our listeners, but we'll have you back later for that. Thank you so much, Diane, for all that you do for the profession and for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Eli. I don't know about you. Whenever I go to a workshop or listen to a podcast, I always like to walk away with some skill that I can integrate either into my life or usually into my therapeutic life as, as a MFT. And whenever I talk to Diane, uh, whether it be in a professional setting or watching her speak or listening to her, I always pull away something. So I'm, I'm hoping you got some tips in there. For those of you that already knew about mindfulness, but maybe for some of our listeners that didn't now have a good place to start and a framework which to move forward. So if you want to move forward, I can give you a couple of hints and tell you about some things. For all things Diane Gayhart related, you go to diangayhart.com. Very simple. Uh, www.d-i-a-n-e-g-e-h-a-r-t.com. There you'll find out about everything. Uh, in her career as far as resources for professionals, uh, clients, including all of her current publications. In fact, if you go into the resources tab, you will find a special section all around mindfulness where she has a mindfulness quick start guide, her approach to mindfulness, and some recommended reading. Uh, speaking of recommended reading, coming out 
very soon, September 2019, is Diane's book for the general public, uh, uh, incorporating a lot of these ideas she told us about today. It's called Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers. And in this book, Diane combines wit, wisdom, and a touch of sweetness, as you can tell she has, to help you uncover a playful ways to transform any aspect of your life. Uh, so this is a thing meant to share with your clients. You can enjoy it yourself, but it's really meant for the general public. Look for Diane on YouTube. She has been very generous and giving away kind of her tips and her skills, whether it be reviewing models or preparing for a licensure exam. But as for our topic today, all you need to do is go to your YouTube browser and type in Diane Gayhart and mindfulness, and you're going to see uh, very informative, short three to five minute videos, things like instructions for starting mindful practice, mindfulness in schools, mindfulness for children and there is a 23 minute video that's really great that is how to meditate and this would work for you as you're starting your own journey into mindfulness it would certainly work also to be able to help a client figure out how to get into this mindful meditative space all of those free and easy on the diane gayhart youtube channel if you want to find us it's quite simple you can find the aamft podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Mine is Apple Podcast, also Spotify, Google Play, whatever have you. And there you'll see our backlog of all of our past installments from our 2019 journey into podcasting at the AAMFT. As always, to keep up with the AAMFT, go to aamft.org. Send us an email. We'd love to hear feedback about the show. Best way to do that is communications at aamft.org. Also, follow the conversation on Twitter. It's The handle is at the AMFT, and I'm at Dr. Eli Live. I love being a part of the AMFT, and I love interacting with other MFTs and the listeners of this podcast. Please, drop us a line. Until next time, stay systemic, my friends. <laughs>